0: This morning we begin our summer sermon series focusing on the Old Testament passages in the lectionary. The lectionary is the list of readings chosen from the entire Bible that we follow over the course of a church year. This summer, those lectionary Old Testament passages tell us how Israel transitioned from a loose confederation of tribes to a kingdom. From the time they arrived in Canaan, after their escape from Egypt, the Israelites had been led by what were called judges. The judges were wise men and women who helped the people follow the law that God had given them at Sinai and helped them resolve conflicts. Samuel is such a judge, and he's been doing a very good job of it. But he's getting old, and the people are anxious about who will take his place. They're afraid his sons might be his natural successors. In the verses just before, the ones we read this morning, we're told Samuel's sons didn't inherit his sterling character. They've taken bribes and been generally unfair. So the people tell Samuel, give us a king. Give us a king so we'll be like all the other nations. Give us a king who will lead us into battle. The backstory here is that for most of Israel's history, this little sliver of land on the Mediterranean epitomized the African proverb, when elephants fight, the grass gets crushed. One superpower after another was constantly invading or threatening Israel, Egypt to the south, Babylon and Assyria to the east, Aram, Syria to the north, and still farther north, the Hittites. This conversation about kings between the people and Samuel comes at a time when those superpowers are distracted by their own internal issues. It seems like a unique opportunity for the tribes of Israel not only to cast off foreign domination, but to form a mini-empire of their own. Samuel isn't happy about their suggestion. He takes it personally. He doesn't stand up for his sons because he knows the people are right about them. He brings all this to God, and God says, it's not about you, it's about me. They haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. Now, what does God mean by this? Why is the fact that they want a king a rejection of God? Well, we get a hint in the long warning that God tells Samuel to deliver, the most scathing diatribe against monarchy and maybe one of the most political passages in the Bible. Again and again Samuel says, he will take, the king will take your sons, your daughters, your fields, your produce, your servants, your herds, your flocks, and ultimately, ultimately Samuel says you shall be his slaves. And I picture that last statement punctuated by a clap of thunder. What God intends for people, what God intends for God's people, is freedom. Remember the Exodus, where God rescues the people from slavery, from slavery in Egypt and brings them here to this land of freedom. The reason God mentions Egypt when speaking with Samuel is because the Exodus is the defining story about who God is and what God wants for God's people. And now they want to go back to slavery? I picture God sighing, shaking God's head, maybe maybe even weeping. It was Sigmund Freud who said, most people do not really want freedom because freedom involves responsibility and most people are frightened of responsibility. In the chapters to come, we see all God's warnings coming true finally coming to their fullest fruition in King Solomon. What do we do with this story? Is this story just a reminder that we can't trust those who govern, that power corrupts, that people are hopelessly destined to choose slavery over freedom in fear? There are a handful of more hopeful lessons here. First, what we see here is what happens when people act out of fear instead of out of trust in God. Fear is always what leads people to choose to give up their freedom. John Steinbeck wrote, power does not corrupt, fear corrupts. Perhaps the fear of loss of power. We see this again and again in our own time and culture and in the world. If you want to control someone, Make him feel afraid. The Israelites say they want to be like other nations. Other nations have military might, standing armies. They don't get pushed around. As a mother, I can't help wanting God to respond, if all the other nations jumped off a cliff, would you? (laughs) The thing is, the Israelites were different. They were supposed to be different. In the book of Numbers, they are described as a people living alone and not reckoning itself among the nations. The Israelites were different because they lived by a different code from the other nations. God had given them an order based on justice and compassion in the law that he delivered at Sinai. This was radically different and radically free. Justice and compassion are the only way that they or anybody else can truly be free. But the Israelites want the kind of security, or what they imagine to be security, that comes from might, like all the other nations. The people mention specifically that they want a leader to take them into battle. Again, I see God shaking God's head. So the first lesson might be to take care that we are not, we are not choosing our leaders out of fear. History confirms that fearful choices lead to loss of freedom. As Nelson Mandela said, may your choices reflect your hopes, not your fears. It isn't that God doesn't want us to have leaders, it's just that God has a very different idea of what makes a good leader. That's a second lesson. An important difference between Israel and the surrounding nations is that God doesn't actually endorse or appoint or send these kings, as was the case in Mesopotamia, for example, where the king came from their God and basically was their God. Our God allows monarchy, but doesn't approve of it. God's idea of a good leader is Moses, a modest shepherd who overcame his lack of self-confidence to lead his people to freedom. Moses never, ever suggested they should make him their king. And of course, we see God's idea of a leader most clearly in Jesus, the servant leader. So we might ask of all of our leaders in any situation, is your priority the needs of the people or the desire for your own self-preservation as a leader? Do you give voice to the voiceless or listen primarily to those who already have power and wealth? Are you operating out of fear or out of love? Maybe one lesson here is be careful for what you ask for, because you might get it. But more importantly, God's promises don't cease when we make bad choices. God gives us the freedom to make choices and that freedom comes with living with the consequences. But whatever we choose, God does not abandon us. In fact, a bit later, God seems to have decided if you can't beat him, join him, when God tells Samuel to go ahead and anoint Israel's first king, King Saul, which doesn't work out very well at all wonder if that's God's way of saying, I told you so. I don't know. The stories of Israel's kings that we'll explore this summer tell very human stories of very human motivations, fears, and scheming, and no small amount of violence. But they are also stories of courage, faith, and hope. God is with the people through it all, guiding and leading nudging, sometimes speaking through the challenging voice of prophets like Samuel. One of the most amazing facts is that these stories were preserved and included in scripture because most of the writings from this time in history including the Old Testament were written on behalf of and in order to bolster one king or another. Very few people could read or write and most of those who could royal scribes. And yet, this passage, this timely condemnation of leaders who would use fear and greed to exploit and enslave people, ended up in our Bible, which tells us that with or without kings, our God remains the God of freedom. Thanks be to God. Amen.